everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 47 of Archaeology in Ale, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach programme from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. This month our guest speaker is local historian and archaeologist Ken Dash, who will be talking about his time with the Museum of London and how excavation was changing in the 1970s. Started because oh, yeah, Ken's in for about three hours tonight. What? <laughs> oh, so, for those who don't know me, my name is Steve Hollings, and on behalf of Archaeology in the City, I welcome you all to our latest Archaeology Nail uh, talk, which we've made into a podcast and should be released in the next couple of weeks. Um, just want to say thank you to Emily and the team here at our spiritual home, the Red Deer. Please. Drink sensibly and eat as much food as you can, and then we'll let us have the facilities for nothing. <laughs> as I say, we are Ken's going to speak for an hour, so there'll be opportunities for questions afterwards. Um, with no further ado, I will hand over to the legend that is Ken. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. You've been a lovely audience, I should say. But um, yeah, um, 
I actually put this talk together, God, was it 12 years ago? I gave it to Bolsterstone, wasn't it? But this is like a different version. Not 12 years ago. Yeah, I think it's 2011, something like that, yeah. <coughs> um, it was special. Yeah, no, <laughs> nothing, none of that here. So really, this is, um, I'm afraid it's full of grainy black and white photos from almost 50 years ago, so don't expect anything uh, with modern technology. They're taken with my old Nikon camera, uh, black and white film in the days of film. So really, this is a, it's a bit of a retrospective. I spent a year and a half working for the Department of Urban Archaeology, Museum of London, from the spring of 75 through the autumn of 76. And I came back briefly in 77. So it's that, but it's also a bit of a, like a personal biography. And also, when I was chatting to Steve about what we should show, I thought, let's show how arche archaeological excavating techniques were changing in the early 70s. Lots of things you now see a standard were being adopted then, 50, well, nearly 50 years ago. So it's, which one is it? It's this one, right. So here we go. Uh, one or two embarrassing photographs. That's me, my first dig, age 19. Um, and I, I was working for the Prudential, believe it or not, as an insurance clerk. And it was boring. And I swapped it for, uh, swapped a three-piece suit for that and went digging. And this is, if you know London, this is the famous... Um, Royal Naval College, now Greenwich University. And there's the, the Queen's House and the Royal Observatory up on the hill. I think this is made by Sir Christopher Wren, if I remember rightly. And that's the excavation, all but forgotten now, of Henry VIII's, one of Henry VIII's palaces, the Palace of Placentia. Um, there's only one known drawing of it by a Dutch uh, spy called van der Weingard. And we found what he, he drew, we actually found here. This is the Thames foreshore in the 1500s. This is now obviously dry land and the, the Thames is now out here, having been embanked. But uh, I think the bit I was digging was there. So that's what, I thought this was all archaeology is going to be like this because we're finding gold and silver and goodness knows what else. In fact, the, the director, um, Phil Dixon, once came up to me with his hands like that and he said, I'm going to sh show you this for three seconds. He opened his hands and there were five gold quarter marks in a rotted leather purse. And they're in the Maritime Museum now. Um, they're in there somewhere. I think that where they were, I saw them there. So I thought all digging was going to be like this. Unknown to me, it's going to be more like Castleton, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, to illustrate a difference in technique. This is that's me again, I'm afraid. Much thinner <laughs> version of me with lots of bushy hair at Bayham Abbey in Kent. Um, to illustrate a difference in technique, really, it's the only dig I was on where we recorded the site in Imperial units because it started back in the 60s. So the plans, you, everyone does them now at 1 to 10 or 1 to 20. There's a scale of 1 to 24, 1 inch to 2 feet. So, yeah, it's a sort of a research dig. It's this beautiful, um, I think it's a pre-Monstratensian Abbey in, uh, in Kent. So what safety equipment were you wearing there, Ken? Uh, <laughs> there's a trowel there, that's all I think, yeah. Your colleague at the back? Yes, I'm not sure we can do that nowadays. No, you'll see something even more scary in a bit. Um, in 74, July 74, I worked at the excavation of an Iron Age farmstead, three miles to North Penhale in Cornwall. Um, and this is the only site I've ever been on, and I don't think any of you will ever been on something like this, where the site grid, as we record them in you know, squares uh, now, uh, but the director, Joshua Schweizer, set out the, the site grid in equilateral triangles. There were no planning frames in those days. We literally used to get a, a tape measure from um, 
a peg on a grid and extend it out to whatever we're doing and, and do it by triangulation, which is very tedious. And he thought, if we're going to do triangulation, let's do it by literally triangulating on an equilateral uh, triangle grid. Thanks to Colin, who gave me his email address, I contacted Joshua just a few weeks ago, and lo and behold, he had the site plans in his attic. He actually fetched them down. His bit shamefaced, he'd never in 49 years uh, given them to the Truro Museum. So here they are. This is, this is that there. Is of course um, that there. So you can just about see. Um, there's a peg there, peg there, peg there, peg there, peg there. The whole thing was set out in equilateral triangles. No one's ever used that before or since, to my knowledge. Unless you, you have any, uh, it's a, it's a one-off. But it shows you how techniques, yeah, how techniques are changing. Uh, another vision of the past in the autumn of '74. I was excavating up here in Dover Castle in Kent. Um, they were doing a, a drainage ditch around the castle, and just with a JCB, and we were recording the, the sections. And one day, the bottom of the JCB's scoop broke through, and people say, oh, there's tunnels everywhere. We actually found a medieval tunnel. There was pottery in it dating to around 1300. Uh, we didn't have a site camera, because we were just a sort of watching brief. So I actually had to phone the Ministry of Public Building and Works, as it was then, and this man from the ministry came out from London. He took the site photographs with this thing. I mean, this is the nearest I found on the internet. One of these bellows cameras that, you know, you put a hood over yourself. And it was a, not even film. It was a, gla a glass plate camera. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to illustrate, how much things have changed in 50-odd in years. Yeah. Uh, and this is, then, then I started, the following spring, I started with the Museum of London. It was set up in 1973. Uh, to conduct a program of excavation and research into various aspects of the city's origins and development. There was still then, even in the 70s, um, a lot of bomb damage being um, repaired, excavated, built on in the city of London. So I started uh, in March 75. They're running two major digs. And I started um, with what's called the GPO, because it was a post office uh, site on Newgate Street, which is quite near to, the, um, to St. Paul's Cathedral. And I'll show you more of this later, but the excavated area is about 50 by 80 meters. These huge area excavations were uh, very typical of the 1970s. So that's where, where the site was. Um, there's St. Paul's Cathedral, of course, and there we are. That's street level there. And by the time we got down to this level, we were about the level of the 12th, 13th century, maybe. So everything before that had just been stripped out. And this strange thing here is a ventilation shaft that's early work. That's in the very few first few weeks. You can see this is um, that's the excavation director who was a beatnik, uh, as you can see from the clothing he's wearing. <laughs> oh, excuse me. This is why you need beer. Oh, that's just four of my sort of digging buddies. Um, lost touch with them all. This guy, I won't name him, but he's he's married to an MP now in North London. They've got lots of children, so you better keep him quiet. <laughs> Uh, that's a medieval wall being excavated. And yes, this is a rope. That's how we got down into, into the thing. That's health and safety here. Yeah? And at tea break, you just call that and you have to climb up this rope to get out of the, the ditch. Um, <laughs> techniques are very, very different then. That's Debbie, one of my housemates, uh, climbing out of a similar ditch. That's Dave. Um, in fact, Dave's 70th birthday party is soon. I'm going to his, his birthday bash in London. So I'm in touch with a lot of these people still. That's Barbie. She lives in Wales now with her husband. 
and so, yeah, I still know all these people, which is, that's the nicest thing about it, because you're all young. Uh, perhaps in many years' time, you'll all know each other. Keep in touch. It's worth it. That's excavating a medieval pit. Um, yeah, everything was cut through and cut through and cut through by later incursions. And this is a more general view of the site. This is this enormous ventilation shaft. And uh, again, there's street level. Um, oh, there's Alan, the site director. And um, yeah, this ventilation shaft, um, what most people don't know, there's actually two underground systems in London. This is the second one. Uh, it's run by the post office GPO, ran for 75 years from 1927 to 2003. It's 21 meters below the London streets. Um, you can actually look it up on the internet now. So I guess the shaft we had was that one there. Um, and it was just a tiny underground train. Uh, they actually do tourist rides on it now. You can climb into this tiny little thing. It just took all the, all the post, the mail, all the way underground through London from one end to another. And yeah, not so, there's nothing like so much mail now, so it closed down, but it, it's reopened, in, as I said, in recent years as a, a touristy thing. And that's the house we rented in Sydenham in southeast London. That's the flat we had. There were four flats. And People often say, was it haunted? The answer is yes. <laughs> no, I actually, I've got, to, I should have brought them. I, I'll put them in this. There, when I left, I, um, there are two students. Um, I just wrote them a letter when I got here to start my degree, just to thank them for posting on my mail. And they were terrified. They wrote me a letter, which I still got, just um, saying they're frightened for this, the, the ghost that was in the, in the rooms in here. Uh, <laughs> so they, I never saw it. Um, there you go. They were absolutely terrified. That's um, Barbie, or Barbara Scammell, she's an East End lass. That's the medieval pits cutting a Roman floor. And we didn't have much of the Roman layers. Everything was intercutting and there wasn't much left. Um, the medieval stuff had, you know, these deep cesspits and so on had destroyed almost everything. And what we did find, though, was um, uh, the graveyard of St. Nicholas Shambles. Uh, dated 11th and 12th centuries. Most of the bodies lay in simple graves, no um, size to it, no, no wooden things, no coffin nails or anything. Analysis of the material showed a generally healthy population and a high incidence of similar traits suggests that many of the skeletons were of related individuals. And as you might expect, you know, they had osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, bone defects from anemia. One... Um, one form of spinal degenerative disorder was four times more common in men than in women, maybe in related to lifting heavy objects. What we also found, which, uh, this, which I copied down, doesn't say, um, the shambles was a meat market, and we found um, a lot of young skeletons of butcher's boys uh, with uh, finger digits missing when, presumably in training to be butchers, they chopped off their fingers. <laughs> So there's one of the skeletons we, yeah, we found. We couldn't just because of the pressure of time. We photographed them and, and put a, a marker at each end and had a general um, plan and we shaded in on that what was left of each one. And that's just a general view of us excavating. We had a lot, of, we opened it to the public and we had a lot of these city, business suited city gents. Because remember, this is the city of London, you know, the, the, where all the businessmen were. They were a bit baffled. One of them actually um, actually started shouting, it's heresy, it's heresy, you shouldn't be doing this, you know, because we're excavating human remains. We did have to um, rebury them, all the ones that were lifted, 
in consecrated soil. It was all done, you know, properly and with respect and so on. But uh, I think for some of the visitors, it was a bit too much in the mid-70s. And this is what I took the photographs with. I, I began to get interested in site photography. Um, and the, there are digital versions of something looking like that now. Uh, it's a film camera, obviously, it's a Nikormat, beautiful camera. And also a Rolleiflex, um, which is a twin lens reflex camera, which gives you a laterally inverted image. Have any of you ever seen anything like that? Shake heads? No, I didn't think you would have. <laughs> so, yeah, we took that as a large format camera with really large format um, black and white film for um, just the photographic records, really. And we use the Nikormat for color slides. So again, you know, an example of how recording techniques have changed. Yes, and that's me um, on a stepladder doing site photography. The bowler hat I'd bought the year before on another excavation. And it was actually good because the rim kept the rain off you when you're taking photographs. It was actually, you know, kept the rain off my glasses. But that's a hell of a stepladder. It went down even, even further than this. Yeah. I don't know. Would you allow that these days with health and safety? Stepladder that big? Probably not. You wouldn't allow the person who was holding the ladder to step away to take the photo. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. How tall is it? How tall is it? Well, you can see. I'm only five foot five, so it, it's... Um, yeah, we can't see the bottom. I know you can't. It, it must have been a good three or four metres high. It's enormous, yeah. So going deep into the early medieval layers, there's a well there. We actually found um, three of them all in a straight line. We heard later there's actually a well in the basement of St. Paul's, so we thought there's an underground stream, you know, lost between the centuries to each other, but obviously known about at the time to whoever was making it. And we had these enormous concrete stanchions, there's one there, one there, from the, uh, the Victorian building that was destroyed, and oh, it was the devil's own job to get rid of them with uh, pneumatic drills, uh, which is good fun to use. And that's um, Barbie, we've seen a few photographs. That's her boyfriend, later husband, Salvatore. They're still together and they live in Wales. Uh, I tried to teach him Cockney rhyming slang. It was <laughs> coming from the Bronx, it was a, it was a, it didn't work. That's his parents visiting from America. But as I said, it's a bit of a personal journey, so there's people I know. That's Andy Boddington, who's a liberal Lib Dem councillor in uh, Shrewsbury at the moment, showing some students. Notice the flare jeans? I said there would be, yeah, lots. Lots of flair there. So that was my main site, but every now and again I got taken off that. And we, um, in the autumn of um, 1975, we started excavating 48 to 50 Cannon Street near the big railway station. Um, the cellar, again, had taken out all the surfaces. We only got cut features, uh, just drains really. All we got was six, six Roman drains from trade. Trajanic, Hadrianic date, about 100 to 140 AD. And we found a lot of pits containing mid to late Saxon pottery. And being that time of the year, the excavation took place in almost continual rain. And because we were so deep, they literally scooped out a building between the other buildings, as you see in a minute. So the sunlight never reached the ground surface at all. So we start as early as we can and worked on. In effort to excavate as much as possible, we worked through uh, three evenings by arc light, that's the site. Um, that's probably a time exposure. <laughs> so, uh, I literally went on top of a building and photographed down uh, through the um, 
you can just see the foundations there. There isn't even street level. You can just see the beginnings of the drains there. That's us excavating by gaslight, believe it or not. November 1975, there's a big arc lights there and, and there's the gas cylinders there and there. And another one there. And that's one of the, uh, the drains, Timberline Roman drains. And there it is. I, that's, uh, you can see the line of drains there and the post holes. To take that photograph, I put my anorak on and buttoned it up and had the camera on the edge of the building, which I took it from, which is about 100 feet up. And I leaned over the edge, and uh, this Andy Boddington held on to the, um, <laughs> the hood of my anorak, and I, I leaned over the edge. To, it's the only way to get this view. But you can see how deep we were. This, isn't, this is hardly even street. Street level was about here. There's no other way to get a view like this, but I managed it. Um, I tried it one other time with my eldest daughter, and I got berated for that. <laughs> Leaned over a cliff, um, got my, my wife to hold on to the anorak. And I got good, good wildlife shots, you can do that, but not recommended. What, what did the risk assessment say when you uh, We didn't have risk, risk assessment. assessment. <laughs> no, we there were literally none, you just got on with it. Um, oh, that's nice beer. So that's a plan. I, I tried to relate this to that photograph, and it's very difficult, actually. Um, but there's the, that's a reconstruction of the drain, just wooden drains. With the, I think those stakes there are probably the posts over there. And during this, I went um, just for a weekend with my, so I mentioned my personal life, my then girlfriend. Um, we went to Paris, look at all the art galleries. And while we were away, guess what they blooming well found? Yeah, that. <laughs> I know, you, you know, people often say you never find, we're not really there to find buried treasure, but we did. Someone had thrown this into one of the drains. Uh, emeralds linked by a gold chin, I presume it's made for some Roman nobleman's wife or mistress or whatever, we don't know. We found it, it's, um, it was whipped into the Museum of London. I only saw it in 1992 when I went to the Museum of London. Uh, unfortunately, that's being refurbished and everything, so it'll reopen, I think, next year. Whether that'll be on display then, I don't know. But I have seen it. But, it, yeah. Um, I think the emeralds came from North Africa, so it's, it's an absolutely astonishing thing that we've, we just... Who would throw that away? Perhaps there's a lover's tiff there that we'll never know about. Yeah. Oh, that's my housemate Debbie cooking at that flat in Sydenham. God. <laughs> living conditions in the 70s. Is she a good cook? I can't remember now. We're alive. Uh, and this is the winter of 1975-76 now, so it's a bit, bit gloomy. We carried on working all through the year because, we, you know, it's, it's not a student dig. We're working for the Museum of London. We're, we're on permanent work contract. Our wages then were £25 a week. £7.50 a week went in rent in London. Believe it or not. What were your working hours? Uh, yeah, nine to four thirty, nine to five, five days a week. Yeah, it's fairly standard. Yeah. Another one of winter seventy five, seventy six. And then um, another rescue dig that was called away, the Forum Southeast, the southeast corner of the Roman Forum, trying to try and locate the um, between one hundred, built between one hundred and twenty and one hundred twenty five A.D. There wasn't much left of it because of all the you know, later uh, building. 
So we worked closely with the contractors on a tight schedule to construct what was later to be called the NatWest Tower, which later, when it was built, became then, now being superseded, of course, the tallest building in, in Britain. So it was really beyond a rescue excavation. It was a salvage dig. Um, so a four-piece of Roman occupation will reveal a gravel surface and a regular gully and mud brick buildings of walls of unfired bricks. This phase was destroyed by fire, probably by the burning of Londinium during the Boudican Revolt. Ah, that's, I actually remember this. Um, we recovered, I remember literally shoveling in bags of carbonized grain because almost nothing had been found of the Boudican Revolt and we suddenly found lots. Uh, yeah, we found 25 kilograms of it, amazing. Uh, third period comprised surfaces of gravel and grey earth over the fire debris, but there no definite structures, very little was left. Fourth period comprised mortar, gravel and sand surfaces to the south, fragments of walling. Uh, and the, the medieval church of St. Dionysus Black Church has also discovered ran often reused medieval foundation. So there's a photograph of part of the dig cleaned up. There's very little left, unfortunately, just odd stubs of walls here and then layers. We weren't able to record it very well because the, the contractors were working at breakneck speed to build the, the enormous NatWest Tower. There's another. You can see the Roman brickwork there. There's one story here. If you ever go to London and see the NatWest Tower, one day I came in and they, they had a huge jackhammer connected to a JCB and they were destroying a piece of concrete wall that they had you know, built and formed only a few days before. And I said, hey, you've just built this like three days ago. Why are you destroying it? And this shows a difference in um, technique, if you like. Now it's all done by you know, GPS uh, pointing and everything. He said, oh, my, uh, my pen slipped in the plans and the wall ended up nine feet longer. <laughs> and that was it. this was it, yeah, 1975. Um, yeah, so they just, they just erased it by destroying nine foot of wall. Um, and there's us digging in the Forum Southeast. It was a hell of a salvage dig. And there we are again, just shoveling out this Thames gravel. It was horrifying stuff to, to move. And then back, um, there's, a, there's the Forum Southeast in a reconstruction there. And that's London Bridge, of course. We, in fact, go back one. That's Louise, my sort of girlfriend from 50 or almost 50 years ago now. And in the, the following, that very hot summer which followed, she and someone else actually found the pilings for the Roman London Bridge here. And then that, that super hot summer ended and the Thames, level of the Thames rose. It was not rediscovered again and properly recorded until 1981. But I think she has the honour of finding it. And there it is. That's, that's what they built once we finished digging. Uh, I just got this photo off the internet just to show you. It's now surrounded by lots of even taller buildings. Uh, that's just to give you an idea of what the Thames was like uh, about a thousand years ago. It, it, and that's the city of London, of course. It, there's lots of streams coming off. There's a river at the Fleet and the, um, there's another one there, Walbrook. I think the Tower of London, to be, was about there. And the GPO site was about, I think, there, somewhere like that, yeah. So by early 1976, we'd gone down to the late Saxon layers. We found the remains of a large building 8850 to 950. So, yeah, beautiful um, Saxon timber trenches. 
that's a suggested reconstruction of what, what it might have looked like from um, it's a building about the history of uh, the City of London, which I've got at home. I just photographed it from the book. Hope they won't mind. And that's my um, flatmate, Debbie, and uh, she got married to Steve. I lost touch with them about 20 years ago, so I assume they're still married. I don't know. That was the, the wedding was at the um, University of London's uh, church. And she was with the Institute of Archaeology at the time. He was doing a PhD on the, the psychology of the National Front. <laughs> I don't know why, but there you go. Uh, if you don't know, the National Front is a, uh, an extreme right-wing uh, group, uh, like a precursor of the British National Party, whatever they're called now. And that's time off from work. It's an evening playing darts at the Globe in Borough Market, which is near London Bridge Station. And that's a reconstruction of Roman London. You can see the Thames was very wide then. That's the city of London, that's Southwark. I don't know if you know London at all, but the Thames is about twice as wide then as it is now. And that, that's the, it's all you know, massively built. All these rivers have disappeared. They're all in uh, brick-lined Victorian tunnels now. Um, and to, actually, going back there, the, the river was successively narrowed and narrowed and narrowed as time went on. So in Roman times, it was very wide, but when they wanted to build, it was easier to build inwards. So you just put a, a piling in there and just filled it with rubble from old buildings, and you want to do another one, you did that. And so the level of the Thames slowly got higher, the Thames flew faster, and uh, it got narrower, which is why the Thames is such a fast-flowing river now. Uh, the original Thames was a very wide, very uh, slow-flowing river. That's one I found on the internet, which is actually very good. You can see the, the course and the extent of the Thames now and all its bridges, and you can see how much wider it was then. And it was um, a river with many small islands. And if you know London, lots of the, um, some of the suburbs, like Bermondsey, Chelsea, and so on, the sea ending means an island in a river. And I think they were, where's, where's Bermondsey? Is it over there somewhere? Chelsea, that might be Chelsea, I don't know. But yeah, it, there were lots and lots of islands. It was nothing like what you'd expect now. Oh, sorry, what you get now. May 76. Um, there's uh, one of the skeletons from the cemetery of St. Nicholas Shambles being excavated. And there's my first photograph of planning frames. Never seen them in use before. I don't know if any of you um, go back that far. Maybe Mr. Merrini, I don't know. I know. Oh, it's, it's when do you start using them? That's the thing. This is, we're just down beyond below the medieval stuff and onto the Roman layers by now. And that's uh, yeah, May of '76 again. And this is the day that changed all our lives. Harris Matrix was introduced. That's my diary from the sixth of May, 1976. Day of site conferences on using Ed Harris recording techniques. Andy very skeptical, as and so am I. We didn't we didn't like it at all. But uh, it's not, again, it's it's to illustrate how much how things have changed. This is all standard procedure now. But that's the day it was introduced. Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> yeah that very hot summer of '76, which has gone down to legend, began. We we all went a little mad. In June '76, we dressed in drag and danced to the steps of St Paul's. I think we did a can-can. We were thrown out for being disrespectful. Um, there's me. Um, yeah, I'm still in touch with him. Him, 
Him. Not her, yeah. Um, and not him, yeah. Yeah, and her, yeah. So yeah, most of us still in touch with each other, but yes, we, that was infamous. If you want to look at all these pictures, we got them all together about seven years ago. There's a website, if you Google Hobley's Heroes, Brian Hobley was the chief urban archaeologist. A few years ago, we decided to put all our photos down. They're all there, all this, all this um, 70s rubbish. But there you go. We had fun. Tea break? And this is just, I was almost ready to leave for university then. Group photo of Newgate Street in August 76, just before I left for Sheffield. Um, there's me. And we had a coach trip out to Butser, which is just being set up then. So that's one of the early Iron Age um, buildings at Butser, just being built. The, the, that hot summer had broken, that's why it's so misty and foggy then. We, we, it started with almost torrential rain in the autumn of 76. And then I left to university, uh, but I returned to volunteer at the Milk Street excavation in the summer of 77. That's just a photograph showing the same people with, I don't know if it's slightly more or slightly less, flared jeans. <laughs> I don't know. And I nearly got myself killed. Um, I went down with this chap, John Maloney, there. Uh, you can see the, the layers. There were the... Um, Workers are building a telecommunications tunnel, you know, to put cabling in under the, the modern street levels. It was just far enough below the street surface that we could uh, again find the, um, look at the Roman layers, which we're measuring there. Then between us and where the navvies were digging this tunnel, the whole blooming thing collapsed. Uh, there wasn't much shoring there. We, we had safety helmets on for once, and that's about it. Um, yeah. That was the fifth time I was nearly killed on an excavation, actually. It's the only one I've got a picture of. I told my daughters they're blooming lucky to have me as a dad because I nearly didn't make it. There was a trench collapse in, when I was at Dover Castle, another one on the Newgate Street site, and uh, two, what was it 1972-73 when I was excavating at Baynard's Castle in London. But yeah, in fact, three, three people were killed in the 1970s, three young archaeologists, uh, because uh, no health and safety... No regard for anything. We just, it was just good fun for us. We just went in there and did it. Um, so that, that's really the end of my story of the working for the Museum of London. I could have rattled through this very quickly. Uh, never mind. So I'll um, end by showing you some other photographs of other digs I was on, really to illustrate that the sort of things we were doing then. This was the area of big area excavations. Often we never knew when we were coming back. Some of them were research, some of them were rescue. Uh, but the idea now, we, ex we excavate a small area, sampling it. We excavated big areas then, and big means, you'll see. Um, several, yes, 1971, this has worked its way into the textbooks now. I worked on the excavations of an Iron Age hill fort in the Cotswolds, Crickley Hill. Is any of your, in any of your textbooks? No? Oh, well. <laughs> uh, we excavated the whole of the hilltop, exposing the Iron Age village. So this is a reconstruction of the earlier phase of the Iron Age village, and that's later phase when they converted from longhouses to roundhouses. This is a bit of an innovation, because these longhouses weren't known in Britain very much at the time. They were known all over Europe, the, the linear band ceramic longhouses, but we were one of the very first digs to find that they actually were building in this style uh, in England. Uh, Philip Dixon, who's excavating that very first dig of mine on, at Greenwich, uh, he's now retired as Professor of Archaeology in um, Nottingham, 
but he was the director of this. Um, you can, I don't know if you can see, it's not really clear, but you, you can see the um, ground surface there wasn't much below, 10 or 15 centimeters down, there's not much depth of anything. And there you can see the, the post holes, one of the longhouses, and, and a horse came onto the site somehow. We're about 800, uh, I don't know how much this is in meters, I've never converted, about 880 feet up on the Cotswold escarpment. But uh, one tale that I tell um, is this very old man came to the site one day in 73. We'd never seen him, and Alice Pandrich, one of the site supervisors, I uh, can't do her Geordie accent very well, but she said, have you had a hard time getting up here, Hinny? And uh, he said, don't you know who I am, madam? And it was blooming Mortimer Wheeler. Uh, he was so old, but he died three years later in 76. But he was so old then and hadn't had a public profile. No one's seen him publicly for years. Then yeah. fortunately we recognized him. He was given you know, a guided tour, of course. But yeah, famous visitor. And there, as you can see, that, that's the, uh, near, the trench from the um, Neolithic uh, Causeway enclosure. And again, the, normally the, the depth of archaeology was hardly anything below the... You just took off the grass and about that much of turf and you got it. It was, yeah, the whole surf, surface was exposed. And this is what I meant when we do, did big area excavations. This is 1972, too. We had a six-week dig with 120 volunteers. And each of these is a 10 meters square. You can see that, that big roundhouse there, the postals beautifully, and some of the longhouses there. There's one there, there's another one there. Uh, I think there's another one there, another one there. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> and we lived in um, a place called Ullenwood, which is all destroyed now. I couldn't find it on Google Maps anymore. It was uh, an ex-Polish refugee camp from World War II. And we lived in these sort of Nissen huts. It was very uh, Spartan, I think. <laughs> Okay, another dig I went on, again, it illustrates a massive scale of excavation in the 70s. Uh, very beautiful. Um, some of you might have been there. It's Castle Acre Castle in Norfolk. I keep meeting people who say, oh, I've been there. So I don't know if any of you have. The castle had been involved in the Stephen and Matilda War, our first and largely forgotten civil war between 1139 and 1153. Unfortunately, yeah, a lesson to you all, always take your camera with you. I didn't have it on the very first day of the dig. Uh, it was back at the campsite. And I didn't record this thing. It's a um, diesel-powered conveyor belt to get all the soil out of the keep. And uh, the Royal Air Force uh, brought it in and, and put it in there with a, you know, one of those enormous twin-bladed Chinook helicopters. I haven't got a photograph of it. <laughs> Bloody annoying. I know, it's really, it's really annoying. That's uh, what we need for Castleton Cullen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You can see how steep the trenches were as we were going down into the keep. Somewhere in there, I've got a better picture of him, but... Um, is, um, oh God, what's his name? John, ah, I've forgotten his surname. It'll come to me, never mind. He's quite famous now. But there's the uh, conveyor again. And no health and safety. This is how we got down to the keep to excavate. And it goes down, down, down. Uh, yeah, just an enormous wooden ladder. And I spent, I didn't get much of a tan that part of the summer because you know, out of the sunshine, slowly taking down that, uh, down into the keep. And of course, there's no digital stitching then, so this is several black and white photos. You can see the join I put together and I've photographed. That's the keep there. You can actually go and see this now. It's all, I went and saw it in 91 when the children were little. I think Rosie had a tantrum then. She didn't want to see it. <laughs> My oldest daughter.
But it's a beautiful village. You're out that way. Because this end of the village is the, beaut- is the castle. In the middle, just there, is the... Um, think of the Church of St. James, th- St. James the Great, 13th, 14th century. The far end of the village is um, Castle Acre Priory, which is the best-preserved clinic priory in England. So if, if you're into medieval archaeology or medieval history, that village is, is well worth a visit. And in the spring of 74, I spent several weeks excavating a deserted medieval village at um, Thrizzlington, or Thurstanton, as it was called then, in County Durham. Uh, the village had been occupied for 150 years, from 1100 to 1350. I think 1350 is very significant, because, of course, the Black Death, 1347. I don't know if you know, but there are something like 3,000, 3,200 deserted or lost medieval villages in England uh, due to famine, pestilence, economic decline, whatever, and we're excavating one of them. This whole landscape is very depressing. They're just stripping the landscape for a dolomite quarry, and there's the, the factory there. And that's Dave, uh, my friends, on a very wet day. And again, I, I, you know, I put lots of photographs together. But you can see we, we just had to excavate everything because it would be gone within a few weeks when the quarry just encroached and stripped it all out. You can see the walls, the various um, buildings of the village. And, yeah, the most remarkable thing wasn't anything to do with the dig. We had a violent thunderstorm. We saw a tornado. It's the only time I've ever seen one in England. You can get an idea of the scale. It's, you can see the chimneys of the houses there and the, and the trees. I have no idea how big that would be. A couple hundred meters. And just to finish off, this is what it's actually like. A uh, few young people. Once all the warm summer excavations are over and you carry on working through the winter, this is me working in a third century AD Roman site in Sirencester, Gloucestershire, in November 72. And not long after this photo was taken, even the plank sank into the mud. So, right, there you go, I finished. Thank you very much. Finished quite early, yes, good. Do, do we have questions for Ken? Well, I'll, 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 I'll start off. Oh, so what, what, are the, uh, what do you think now are the big differences from when you started to when we're now on a starting? It's got standardised soon after this. So a lot, lot of the stuff that was, you know, like the Harris Matrix that was coming in in 76, by, certainly by 1980 that was becoming standard. When I... Um, yeah, um, site photography is becoming standardised. A lot, of, a lot of the recording techniques that were rudimentary then were becoming standardized. I don't know about health and safety because I had a big gap raising a family. Uh, when I started again in 2010, it was all very, very different. Um, the idea of wearing safety helmets was thought to be a bit naff. There was, almost was no health and safety then, and it was really quite dangerous. But we laughed at it. It, it was just a big joke to us. Uh, you know, the more danger there was, the more fun it was. <laughs> Which is, you know, absolutely ridiculous in modern terms. We we did put ourselves quite in, in what you would regard as as peril. Um, working conditions weren't very good. Uh, we lived in awful uh, living conditions. That that flat I showed you was unheated. We had enough money to live on, but not enough money to heat it. Uh, which is all right in the summer, but in the winter it was freezing cold. We had one small paraffin heater for that enormous flat. The four of us. I hope your working conditions when you finish your degrees and go out to work will be a lot better. I mean, there's no central heating. Uh, in fact, one day in that flat it got so cold 
that all the water vapor in one of the bedrooms condensed out and it was a fog in the bedroom. <laughs> now, I know I told my daughter this because she was complaining at a cold flat she had a few years ago. And I told her that she shut up at that point. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the conditions were, you know, now very, very primitive. Um, but it was great. It was great fun. It really was. What did the general public understand and think of what you were doing? Uh, we didn't have a lot of the guided tours now. There's no internet then. I mean, things like Time Team, lots of the documentaries are on now. This, of course, didn't exist. The general public's view, when we let them in at all, there wasn't much interaction between us and the public. That, that site in Newgate Street, we let the public, which are mainly business-suited businessmen from the City of London, have a look around. We gave them some guided tours, and that was about it. It's one of the few excavations I, I knew where we actually interacted with the public. Guided community archaeology wasn't known. Some local, um, there were local societies which sometimes joined in, like the City of London Archaeological Service, which a great load of volunteers lived around London, came and joined us at the weekends, but not much. There was a, a separation between professional archaeologists and the general public, and a few small private groups which joined down again. None, none of the community, community excavations didn't exist then at all. Interacting with the public, putting um, photographs on Facebook to, so the public could see what you were doing, none of that existed. It was a bit, that was a big, big separation. I don't know, because I took this enormous gap to raise a family when it changed. You can ask Colin that one, he you knows. You know. <laughs> what, what about um, so now archaeology is quite a heavily influenced by science and scientific breakthroughs? There's very little of that. We, um, yeah, just recording the skeletons, for example, at Newgate Street, we, we, it was quite rudimentary. You could tell what bone deformations were visible on, on the scene, but there's no DNA analysis, none of the looking at teeth to see where people came from. That, that literally didn't exist then. None, none of that science was known. You know, the human genome was only sequenced in 2002. It was in, that technology was far in the future. Um, in fact, I was talking to someone the other day about photography. We took f site photographs with film cameras, of course. So you shot off a reel of 36 photographs. You couldn't hold up the dig till they were processed to see if they were all right or some of them blurred or too dark or too light. You carried on with the dig. By the time you got them back from the chemist, you hoped they were all right. So this, this is, you know, Nowadays, you can check individually if your photographs are good, if not, take another one. Um, so if you took a bad photo, it was just too late because the dig had progressed. There wasn't much of what you'd call science. We recorded it, you know, on poem and trace, as, as we do now. Um, and our site records were as good as they can be, but probably not a passion what you can do today. There's no... Um, um, no radar, no, uh, oh, sorry, what's the word? Um, magnetometry, none of that. I don't think it was just UPR. None of it was coming in, yeah. In fact, where the site was in, in relation to other buildings was only known from old old maps. You know, I told you this in, um, sorry, Tim might remember, I told this tale in 2011, so I'll Tell it one more time and that I'll shut up forever. <laughs> no, it'll be on the podcast. All right. Um, before I started with the Museum of London in, uh, in March of, of 75, a few weeks before, uh, my friend Andy Boddington, one of those photographs, was on a watching brief. Uh, I think it was a central line. 
uh, to see you know what was being recorded as they were removing uh, the stuff over you know to, to build another building. Central line was I think it was Central line one of the early lines. It was just a a cut and cover. They they dug a trench through London with navvies in the nineteenth century, built a brick a brick tunnel put the underground railway inside it and covered it over and modern buildings are over it now. But its exact position with, in relation to modern buildings was not that accurately recorded. You know, and you, you could do it, but not so well. So one day they, the JCB uh, scraped uh, this curved brick surface and broke through to it. And Andy looked over and he could see the blooming um, the railway lines below with a pile of uh, bricks on it. <laughs> And he, he actually ran to the nearest underground station, managed to convince the station manager to stop the underground trains, or there would have been disaster. And this is not well known. Um, it, well, it, it's actually been suppressed because the, the, in the autumn of the year before, in the autumn of 1974, there was a famous Moorgate tube disaster when two underground trains crashed together and many were killed. So I think the London Underground were, were they just didn't want this to be known. They suppressed it completely. So you know, but not many people do. And when you started, was was archaeology a career? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd been I'd been working as an archaeologist since 1971. And there was a career path ahead of. There wasn't a career path. I I came here to get so up the academic side of it. But most people were working as I did, going from one dig to another, basically with a rucksack on your back, hitchhiking around the country. And they were forming archaeological units like the, the London one, there's a Norfolk one, and so on. Um, similar to the setup now, but yeah. And, and what qualifications did you have to be taken on to become an archaeologist? None. I literally start. I literally started. I just went along and they said, "Can I dig?" And they said, "Yeah." <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I did um, three months working for the Guildhall Museum uh, excavating Baynard's Castle. I just went there to visit a friend of mine, and she said, "Oh, they need some diggers." And then the excavation director um, is just passing through. I said, oh, here, you're looking for people? And he said, yeah. He said, what have you done? And I just, as he was walking through the site, I told him what I'd done. He said, can you start Monday? <laughs> that was it. And the same for the Museum of London. I had a quick 10-minute interview, and he said, can you start on Monday? Uh, he didn't, there's no looking into qualifications. Very few of us had degrees. It was all very, very ad hoc compared to now. Are there some things that you prefer techniques, methods that you prefer from then compared to now? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing is, I suppose, it, you know, looking back on it, it was a lot of fun. It really was. We, we, had, a, we had a great time. I mean, beer was six or seven p a pint, so you could get drunk for about 20p. Ridiculous, yeah. Oh, sorry, my mistake. I should have, I should have narrowed down. Sorry. Archaeology. Archaeology, yes. <laughs> I was talking about the important things. No, uh, yeah, just, just recording things, uh, you know, um, plans, sections, doing site photography, theodolites, all, all that stuff that you do now. We didn't have GPS. We didn't have total stations. Uh, obviously, digital photography is, is a world away and a world better than anything we could do then with film cameras. Um, film cameras often weren't adapted for the range of colors you found on the site, all the browns and reds you get in soils. Um, we weren't very well adapted for that at all. We, some of the photographs we got came out very strange looking. At, we experimented with different films, different grades of films. Just to, you know, Now you can fiddle with a digital camera and just get the picture you want. That wasn't available then. Didn't you have multiple camera, cameras though, different kinds of cameras? Just those two, yeah, that was it, yeah. yeah. We used to use black and whites and colours and slides and stuff, didn't we? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were experimenting because some of them gave a very green tinge to a lot of the, the photographs, and we we didn't want that. Didn't record that you know the reds and browns and yellows you often got with soils. Is there any one particular site you worked on back in the day where if we'd have, if you've got the modern techniques, you you think oh I wish we had those techniques and could have learned. I do. I have a lot of fondness for that that beautiful medieval castle, Castle Acre. We only excavated it in the keep, in the keep yard. I wish we'd gone into the upper bailey. You can see lots of humps and bumps there, and we never dug it. Um, wish, yeah, wish that could have been done. That was a, just such a pretty place to live and work. Because the other one, of course, was the, was with uh, Paul Mellors and Oren, say, which I haven't shown at all, uh, in the Hebrides. That was extraordinarily beautiful. Tiny little island. Uh, we went there by Land Rover uh, when the tide was out between... Orensee, where the dig was, and Colinsey, where we were staying. Colin knows about this. That's where I corrupted him. <laughs> uh, the following year. But, um, and the tides were out. We, we, we went by boat between the two islands. It was beautiful. Okay. When, when did you then return to archaeology and become a legend in the yeah. community archaeology? In 2010, when I retired. I emailed Colin and uh, said, what's going on? He, he emailed me back and um, that's all started up from then. So thank you, Colin, yeah. Any more questions for Ken? Excellent. We can show our appreciation okay. to Ken. Thank you very much. Okay. I, have, I have one more question just for Colin. And it's, I'm not going to throw him under the bus this time. Is, ah. for, the, for the listeners on the podcast, is there any update on the state of the department? There's not very much to report from last time, I suppose. Uh, we still don't know things like what's happening to all the fixed term contracts about, no news on that. The only thing that has changed a bit is that there have been various documents produced about collections and facilities and equipment, and they've all gone into the implementation group, and there are various sort of vague rules about what may or may not be possible happening, but so there's no substantial changes in what we know, but there has been more information supplied and various documents produced and it's about so we're still largely in the dark. Thank you for listening to Archaeology and Ale. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.